We're starting this teaching theme this morning, it'll lead us through the fall, and we're calling it Glorifying God. It's gone through a couple of different names, but this is really the, the crux that we're going after. It's Glorifying God. And if you've been with us, like many of you have over the last eight months or so, since the beginning of the year, you'll know that we've been on this kind of journey. We started um, a series called Who Do You Say I Am? And we looked at some Old Testament um, prophecies and covenants of who Jesus was, was going to be. And then we looked at who Jesus was, who he said he was, what we see in the Gospels. And then we looked at, okay, in light of that, in light of who, who he is and who we say he is and who we declare he is, who are we in light of that? And so we kind of looked at our own identity and we looked at gifts. And, and then over the summer, we were looking at kind of equipping for, for kingdom work. And it's a kind of a similar theme, this kind of equipping idea, this idea of how do we live in a way that glorifies him? If we understood a little bit more about who he is, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how we're equipped, how do we live in a way that glorifies him? And so we're going we're gonna to dip into some of the shorter letters in the New Testament to discover how our lives can best bring glory to God. And we won't be covering everything in every book or everything in even one book uh, on a Sunday morning. So it's actually really important that you join a community group and, and you do some of the reading on your own. So if you imagine, I was explaining this, um, I've said this before and I explained it this morning to the staff. If you imagine you were doing some higher education course, you were trying to learn something about something. Uh, you maybe go to these lectures that are these kind of keynote foundational marker points that you're going to go to. But that's not going to give you everything you need to know. Those are just kind of the highlighted points. These are these kind of just helping us stay on the same track. You need to go to a study group, like a community group, a place where you can explore together. You can say, hey, I don't understand this. Do you understand this? Nobody understands us. Let's find out the answer together, that kind of stuff. And then you need to do the recommended reading as well. If you really want to understand the subject you're going after, you need to do all those things. It won't all come from this 25-minute moment on a Sunday. So if that's, if you're going to put everything on the 25 minutes, it's too much pressure for me, and it's not going to be enough for you. So I encourage you, get into a community group um, or one of the Bible study groups or one of the affinity groups or something and read alongside. It doesn't have to be daily, but read alongside with what we're reading. Um, we're in the New Testament. It's really accessible. If you're in a community group, you should have heard from your community group leader um, or will do very, very soon about when your next meeting. If you're in my group, I'll get to it and we'll, we'll talk about it really soon. Don't worry. It's coming probably later today. But um, let me pray and then let's jump in this morning for where we're heading. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us the, the, the tools we need to live a life that glorifies you. And we ask that you open your word to, to us this morning. You open our hearts to you so we can learn more about how to glorify you. Amen. So we're in 1 um, Peter, Peter. 1 Peter. 1 Peter. What do we say in this country? 1 Peter. 1 Peter. I knew that, and then I chickened out as I was saying it. We're in First Peter, and he's writing to discouraged believers, and they're, they're taking these heavy hits at the time. They're, they're being persecuted, uh, they're being thrown to lions, they're being um, run out of, of towns in the Roman Empire. It's, 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 it's not a good time for them. So he, he spends his first chapter, um, he says, this is what God's done for you. He provides a bit of encouragement, and he says this. He says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. So prepare the way you think. And so where I want to start this morning, because there's been a lot of studies about self-worth. This isn't new information. Studies about identity. It's pretty apparent that the way you see yourself determines, to a pretty large degree, the way you act or react to things in life. So as we start to consider how we can glorify God, our self-perception, our self-worth, our self-esteem 
is important because it's a governing factor in our lives. If you see yourself as a loser, you end up kind of acting like a loser. If you see, God doesn't create losers, so that can't be right. And if you see yourself as a victim, you tend to let people victimize you. If you see yourself as uncreative, you will likely not come up with creative ideas. And it doesn't really matter. It's kind of regardless of the initial catalyst of those more negative outlooks, whether it's, it's beyond your control or whether it was something that you kind of um, created, it's really easy to perpetuate that mindset and just set yourself up for, for failure, if you like. And on the other hand, if you see yourself as successful, you, you tend to repeat successes that you've had in the past. This is just a known thing. Your outlook is different. You have a more positive approach. And this isn't new. This is not a new discovery. This is not something that's happened in the last few years. Thousands of years ago, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. What we believe comes out in the way that we live. The Bible teaches that our beliefs determine our behavior. So it's important to affirm what we believe about ourselves so that we can live in a way that honors God and will further his kingdom. The belief that you have about yourself goes back to the very beginning of, of you, right back to childhood. And, and some, some of those beliefs, unfortunately, are, are false because we grew up with imperfect people around us. And we are imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. And so we get these, these distorted images of ourselves. And our minds are not prepared for action. I, um, I see a therapist um, somewhat regularly, sometimes more regularly than others, depending on what's going on. And we talk through like life's challenges and things. And one of the themes that comes up for me, and um, being a little bit vulnerable right now, is, is a feeling of, 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 of unworthiness, of not being enough. And, and we've recently months ago, started a technique called EMDR. It's newer-ish in the um, therapy world. That's probably not right. Um, but it can be helpful for a variety of, of, of struggles. So in my case, very loosely, you know, 40,000 foot level, recalling negative beliefs about myself, things that I've established about myself, the things that I believe to be true, and taking note of the way that my brain has stored that information, how I'm feeling as we, as we think about those things, and then working on replacing that negativity with a positive truth. Sort of reprogramming, if you like, the type of response that my brain creates to a certain situation or stimulus or whatever it is. And it's fascinating how the, how the body and the mind stores those memories or, or traumas and how it causes these trigger responses to certain situations. And the solution is, is not to continue to suppress them. That's not the solution, but to replace them. So this is a message as much to myself as anyone else. You may think that if, if you're on, on the stage, you've got it, everything together, and you just call out the little people to do things. Well, that's not true at all. We are all broken people, and we need to not just suppress that brokenness, but replace it with a truth that God says about us. I mean, repentance is that. It's that turning to a new direction, living into how God sees you. And it's super important not to just further ourselves, not to just simply become the best versions of ourselves for us, but, but so that you can serve him and bring glory to his kingdom. We need to overcome the lies that we have believed about ourselves, the things that the world has led us to believe about ourselves, the beliefs that have come from hard situations and experiences because they are holding us back from the ministry we're created for. So what does God say about us? Well, in the passage that Jasmine read 
Peter talks about these sort of what does God say about you characteristics. He mentions um, seven. Um, if you're a believer in Christ, he says you're, you're living stones, you're chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you're God's very own special possession. He says once you were not a people, but now you are people of God. Once you would not receive mercy, but now have you received God's mercy. Each one of those statements, each one of those seven points could be a full-length message. So we could be here for a very long time. But again, I want you to dig in in community groups and on your own, because otherwise we'll be here for a very long time. They're all packed with so much meaning. So what I want to focus on today are the three things that the passage says about you, the three kind of summary statements that I think the passage is talking about. If you're a member of God's family, if you trusted Christ, there's three things. I am accepted, I am valuable, and because of those two things, I'm charged to do his work. So as a part of God's family, I'm accepted. And most of us, probably all of us, spend our lives trying to earn acceptance in some way or another. We, we want to earn it from parents or peers, partners, from people we respect ourselves, from people that we envy. The drive to be accepted is a deep drive that drives us to do all kinds of things. It could influence the clothes you wear, the, the car you drive, the house you buy, the career you choose, the, the, your desired body type even. People do the craziest things to be accepted. Do you ever, can you recall a time as a kid, perhaps, you wanted to so badly be in the in crowd that you would that you'd say, oh, I dare you to do this, and you would be all about it. I'll take that dare to, to, to fit in, to be a part of something, and you did something daft, maybe even risked your personal safety, perhaps. I was telling, um, I was reading some of this to Shay, my wife, and um, she said, well, actually, I have a story about that, and apparently, what age was this, Shay? Junior high? Let's say junior high, or let's say elementary, because it's less embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it was in college. No, it's, it's uh, elementary. She said there was, that, there was a thing we did when you're trying to fit into the group. If you wanted to be a part of the group out on the, the field, you had to step on a bee, like some kind of anaphylactic roulette they were playing. <laughs> Don't do that. That's madness. Um, oh, Southern California. But we do like that, that feeling. We strive after that feeling of being okay, of being accepted. Somebody has chosen me. Somebody has accepted me. Um, I mean, it's an obvious example of being in a sports team. And, and as you know, I'm not in a sports team, have never been in a sports team, don't know anything about sports teams. I, I, was, I was writing this, this, this image of being in the sports hall in my high school, and, and we used to play um, five-a-side indoor, um, uh, what do you call it, soccer um, at school all the time. <laughs> I was thinking football. I, I know what it's called, soccer. And, um, and they would, you know, bring up the, the, the jocks at the front. They say, okay, would you want, do you want, um, you know, one, one pick first or do you want two picks second? And me at the back of the room is like, how about no picks never? This is awful. Like, why are we doing this? Why is this a thing that exists in humanity? Um, but they, they, you know, they, I would get picked near the bottom or last, to the point that somewhere through the year, um, they would say things like, well, don't pick him. He doesn't even try. Because to me, you know what, if it's in my own terms, I felt a little bit better about it. I'll be excluded, but on my terms. And my terms will be, I'm just not going to engage. Um, but if you, one thing if you, you can do if you don't want to fit in well is um, be part of a five-a-side soccer team and then hide 
it's really obvious when not five people come on the pitch. Yeah, um, nobody minded. So that's also a testament to how good I am at indoor soccer. Um, but we love that feeling of being accepted, of being chosen for a team or for an award or for an honor or a promotion or whatever it is. We're all built for community. We're, we're built to do this thing together. I mean, marriage in its simplest, simplest form is, is that. It's, it's my wife choosing me and saying yes to a proposal so two imperfect people can live and accept each other living imperfectly together. And when you're chosen, it does an amazing thing to your self-esteem, your outlook, your, 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 it shapes your entire identity. And so Peter says, you are a chosen people. You are chosen by God. You don't have to be picked out of a team. You don't have to stand on a bee even. You are chosen by God. And that ought to raise your self-esteem just in itself. Christ has accepted you, and there's no condition listed there just to accept him. It's not based on a performance it's not based on something that you've earned. It can't be. You'll never deserve it. God says, I chose you. In Psalm 27, it says, even, my mother, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me still. And I know some of you need to hear that verse because perhaps in your experience, nothing you did was quite good enough for your parents. If you got C's, they wanted B's. If you got B's, they wanted A's, etc., etc. Maybe your career path or life choices didn't align with theirs. You could never quite get their acceptance, but number one, this morning, you have been accepted by God. And then number two, you're valuable. Not only are you accepted, but you're valuable. How much do you think you're worth? Not a net worth, but a self-worth. Valuables should not be confused as value as a person. Uh, I mentioned therapy earlier, and as part of that work I write, I write notes on the mirror, um, like with a dry erase pen, not with like blood or anything. It's not, it's not intense, just, you know, just some notes because it's helpful. Um, and the one I've had for the last, I don't know, six months maybe, um, it says, I am worthy just as I am. Not just because of what I do, not based on my skills, my abilities, not based on how much energy I have left for my family at the end of the day. I have worth. Not perfect, constantly making mistakes, working towards being a better dad, husband, friend, follower of Jesus, all the things, but worthy. So what determines value? Well, there's a couple of things I think that determine value in, in the world. Um, it depends on what somebody's willing to pay for it. So how much is your house worth? Maybe not as much as you think it is, maybe more. Different to what it was a year ago. It's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. How much is a photo worth? Well, depends on who's in it. How much is a piece of art worth? Well, again, depends on who painted it and what someone's willing to pay for it. If you're talking about value, like monetary value, it depends on what somebody is willing to pay for it. How much is an heiress tour ticket worth? I don't know. <laughs> depends on who you ask. So it depends on that, and it secondly depends on who has the ownership. So. If a car was owned by someone famous, it would probably be worth more than a car that I owned. Or a guitar was owned by one of the Beatles, it would be more valuable than one of the guitars up here, perhaps. Or if it was a cowboy hat worn by Taylor Swift, then it would, I don't know if that's, I'm trying to be relevant. I don't know if that's an accurate reference, but I saw a picture of her in a sequin cowboy hat, and I feel like, is that a thing? It's not, is it? Uh, I wrote it down, I thought it might be. I feel like it could be, oh well, anyway. Some of you might buy it. Um, God says you're valuable. So valuable that God exchanged his son for you. That's your worth. 
Peter says you're a child of God. That's how much you're worth. How much was paid for you? Well, the cross. Nobody has paid a greater ransom price than God has paid for you. You're acceptable. You're valuable. And then Peter uses this illustration. He says, sort of God's having this building project, and, and you're part of it. He's building this, this stone building that represents the, the church, the family of God, and you're one of the stones. He says, come to the Lord, the living stone rejected as worthless by men. And who's that living stone? Well, that's, that's just Jesus. He was perfect, but people still rejected him. So if you're in that mindset, at any level of, well, if I could just be perfect, I'd be accepted. No, because Jesus was perfect, and he wasn't accepted by everyone. He was rejected as worthless by men, but chosen, chosen as valuable by God. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. God is, is building his church. The foundation and cornerstone of this, this spiritual building is Jesus God's building this building, and every believer is a building block. Peter says you're a living stone, which you wouldn't think of stones being alive. We think of kind of being dead, I guess. A living stone is kind of a contradiction, like hot ice or jumbo shrimp or something. And when you give your life to Christ, and Christ comes into your life, you become this building block in God's great plan. You become this, this living stone. If you found a living stone, it would be priceless. And God says that that's your value, invaluable. I gave my son for you. And that idea in itself is overwhelming. And as a dad myself, it only becomes more and more incredible. The idea of God giving up his son for me is unfathomable. And then because of that, I get to be an adopted son and loved in the same way is mind-blowing. So I'm accepted and I'm valuable. Therefore, I am capable for kingdom work. You're capable of doing kingdom work. You're royal priests. Depending on your background, the idea of being a royal priest may be um, terrifying, or maybe confusing, or you may be stoked by it. I don't know. But Peter's saying that there's two benefits that priests have then that are now available to everyone as a believer. So in the Old Testament, priests did two things. They had the, the right, the privilege, or the responsibility to go directly to God. They could pray to God. They, they could talk to God. They could worship, fellowship. And everyone else had to kind of go through, through that person. The priest was the one that went one-on-one -on -one with God. And secondly, they had the privilege and responsibility of representing God to the people, so the, the other way, and ministering and serving to the needs of other people. And these, uh, those are the two things that are true of you when you become a believer as well. You now have a right to go directly to God, direct access. You don't have to pray through anyone else. You don't have to confess through anyone else. You don't have to fellowship with God through anybody else. You now have that direct line. You are a priest in that sense. You have just as much right to go before God as I do or as anybody else does. You can read your Bible. You can talk with the Lord. You can fellowship with him in the community of other believers. The word priest in Latin actually means bridge. A priest is a bridge builder between, between God and between man. And that's what God says you are. You are now that bridge. And you've been gifted for ministry to serve other people. Every Christian, every believer is a minister. Maybe not a pastor, but a minister. Anytime you use your talents and your gifts to help others, you are ministering. 
The work of the gospel, kingdom work, is not reserved for just the few. We should all feel passionate about furthering God's kingdom. He saved us and chose us for his holy work. For his holy work. You are saved to serve. So why did God save you? Again, he he saved you so you could serve him. A non-serving Christian is a, a contradiction. If you're not serving, then what in the world were you saved for? He saved us for his holy work, not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan long ago before the world began. God planned it. And you might say, well, I don't know. What does that mean? What is my my ministry? What am I supposed to do? Well, look at your talents, your gifts, your abilities. Look at how God has shaped you. God wants to use those talents, those gifts, those passions to help other people. And every time you do that, that's ministry. Every time you help others in his name is ministry. It's nothing fancy or scary. It doesn't have to be supernatural. It's helping others. Can you be a priest in sales? Of course. A priest in finance? Yes. Whatever it is, wherever it is, anytime you help others, you serve others in his name, you are ministering. And we should be loving for his purpose, on purpose. It takes intentionality, it takes determination, and it takes some resolve. And if you don't use your talents for kingdom work, everybody else gets cheated. We're all important. We're all necessary to do our part as we fit together. When you build a building with stones, back to that living stones idea, you take out one stone, say it's not important, it doesn't make sense, there's now a hole in the wall. You need every stone. And once you discover a ministry, you discover more about your spiritual gifts we've been talking about a few months ago, your talents, you begin to do and use your life in the way that God intended you to. You find your ministry, you find your place. You have that feeling of this is what God has made me for. And I promise your self-esteem will begin to soar. That's why I'm on this earth. I do matter. This is why I was created. Those kind of thoughts come to the surface. Do what God made you for. Do it in in his name and for his name's sake, not for your own. And I know some of you are ministering to each other week in, week out. There's some of you that become roommates. There's many of you committed to community groups, to to that weekly gathering beyond just showing up. Um, Keep going. Don't stop there. Keep stepping out. Keep coming on Sunday. Maybe even come on time so you can speak to each other before service and minister to each other before we get going. Stay for brunch next week. They're not just things for you to enjoy. They're not just things for you to, to receive, but for you to a tool, a place for you to use to minister to others. God doesn't want you to have just a religion. He wants you to have a relationship with him. When he makes that decision, you find you are acceptable and valuable and capable and created for his kingdom purpose. As we close, um, there's a quote from Charles, Dr. Charles Cooley. He says this, he's um, part of the American sociology um, department. He says, your self-esteem, your self-worth or image is determined to a large degree by what you think the people or the person that matters most to you thinks about. So, make Jesus Christ the most important person in your life. He says you're acceptable and valuable and capable, not just for your own well-being, but so that you are able to serve him with the full potential God has equipped you with. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us that allows us to be accepted, that allows our imperfect lives to be made pleasing to God. Help us live with intentionality and purpose. Help us embrace the way you see us, the way you have created us, so that we can serve you and further your kingdom. And we can do it together in your church. Amen.